welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher, I use all pronouns, and I'm the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the August 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode, we're doing a deeper dive on some updates regarding the ministerial exception and sports ban. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Shay. I know we've got a lot of interesting cases to jump in on, but before we turn to that, just one moment to take some updates on 303 Creative, as it's just such an important case. Tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've been doing to follow up on how the lower courts are interpreting the decision. Right. Well, so far, as we uh, reported last month, the uh, Supreme Court on the same day that it issued the opinion of 303 Creative also granted a cert petition from the state of Oregon. Actually, it's from the uh, from the plaintiffs in the underlying, uh, the defendants in the underlying case, the Kleins, who uh, run a bakery called Sweet Cakes by Melissa, and who were found to have violated the Oregon civil rights law by refusing to make a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. They had lost in the Oregon courts, and they had a cert petition pending at the Supreme Court when 303 was decided. The same day that 303 was announced, the court vacated the lower court decision from Oregon and sent the case back for further consideration in light of 303 Creative, which means to me that a majority of the court thinks that 303 Creative has something to do with wedding cakes. And remember, 303 Creative was about a website designer, and there was a factual stipulation in the record of that case that the website designer was an artist, was uh, speaking or engaged in expressive activity in designing the web the websites that she designed and was speaking through them, her beliefs. Uh, We have no such factual stipulation in the Oregon case. The Oregon case was decided after a trial before an administrative law judge. All facts were heavily contested. And so it will be very interesting to see what happens here in the absence of factual stipulation, since this Supreme Court opinion relies very heavily on the factual stipulations in the 303 creative case. There are now pending cases involving wedding photographers who refuse to take photographs of same-sex weddings in the Sixth Circuit and the Second Circuit. The Sixth Circuit, actually, uh, in this issue, forthcoming August issue of Law Notes, we mention it because it happened right at the end of July. The Sixth Circuit held the oral argument in the case. In this case, the district court had ruled in favor of the photographer. And the district judge, uh, Benjamin Beaton, was one of those uh, 11th hour Trump appointees whose nomination was pending when Trump lost re-election and then was rushed through the Senate by Mitch McConnell in the weeks following the election. And he, uh, he ruled in favor of the photographer. So the photographer had a First Amendment right not to take these photographs of uh, same-sex weddings. The case was on appeal by the Louisville Jefferson County Metro government, which had the ordinance, the non-discrimination ordinance that was an issue here. Since Kentucky as a state does not ban 
discrimination based on sexual orientation, expressly at least. So uh, the interesting wrinkle in that case is that after the complaint was filed in the case, the uh, photographer who filed affirmatively to get a declaration that what she was doing was constitutionally protected moved to Florida. And there was some question whether that mooted the case or uh, rendered her without standing in the case, partly because the she had never been investigated and no complaint against her was pending before the commission. This was another hypothetical case, just like 303 Creative. So there are always standing issues there and they're complicated now by her move, partly because the attorney for the county said in the Sixth Circuit argument that they had no interest in going after and prosecuting an out-of-state photographer for what it says on her website about which clients she'll serve. So the idea that, that uh, she is in fear of prosecution now seems to evaporate. In any event, it's highly possible that the Sixth Circuit panel will remand the case to the district court uh, for a new determination on standing and mootness. The other cases in the Second Circuit, definitely not moot, definitely pending. Uh, it involves a uh, wedding photographer named Teresa Carpenter, uh, who doesn't want to do uh, same-sex marriages. In this case, U.S. District Court out in the Western District of New York ruled against the photographer who is appealing the case in the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit actually heard oral argument in this case almost a year ago, but then they decided they shouldn't decide the case until 303 Creative is announced. And they directed the parties, as soon as the 303 Creative decision comes out, you have two weeks to file a supplementary briefs with us. And we may or may not order new oral argument after that. So the briefs have been filed according to the court's docket. And also some amicus briefs have been filed on uh, 303 Creative and how it does or does not bear on this case. And no word yet. The latest I checked was uh, the day before we were recording this podcast. No word yet whether the Second Circuit is ordering a new oral argument. But this case has a ton of amicus briefs on file. I think a bit high, high, more high profile than the Sixth Circuit case. This is New York, after all. So everyone that you would imagine would file an amicus brief has filed an amicus brief in this case, including Legal, which has an amicus brief in this case. So it will be interesting to see what happens on that. But you know, the big question left hanging after 303 Creative is what kind of service or goods constitute expressive conduct in a way that would come within the meaning of the Supreme Court's decision. And the Supreme Court was relying on stipulations. So it could be that they're going to be very fact-intensive battles here. And it may take some time for any kind of test, much less a bright line test, to emerge. You know, you, you look at the litigation so far on wedding vendors, and we have had cases about website design, 303, videographers, photographers, bakers, florists, stationers. There's a case in Arizona of a stationary company that wouldn't print invitations for a same-sex wedding. And I would posit other potential cases might involve wedding singers, caterers. Certainly we've had a wedding venue case here in New York. And I think there have been a few others around the country. What about someone who rents formal wear for events like weddings and they don't want to rent to uh, the, the spousal party in the same-sex marriage? So We've got all kinds of cases that might come up. 
and we will be tracking them faithfully for you and reporting on them in law notes and mentioning them on these monthly podcasts. So uh, we can get out of the way on that and, and get back to our cases for this month. Well, again, we really appreciate your work keeping an eye on that. And thank you for giving us that brief update on what's in the pipeline for the wedding cases to come. So an evergreen topic that we've been talking about this particular legislative session, unfortunately, is all of the attempted rollbacks on rights protecting gender affirming health care, particularly for minors. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the most recent update with the Sixth Circuit? Yeah, we've had a dismaying development on this subject. So far, prior to July 8th, all the decisions which were coming from lower courts, all the decisions which were issuing preliminary injunctions, and we had at least one uh, permanent injunction, barring enforcement of a law banning gender-affirming care for minors. And we've also had great success in attacking Medicaid restrictions on covering gender-affirming care by uh, state Medicaid programs. But now all of a sudden we get a decision out of the Sixth Circuit panel decision on July 8th in the case of LW versus Scrimetti uh, involving Tennessee's law. Tennessee's law was supposed to go into effect on July 1st. And it authorized state regulatory authorities to impose professional discipline on any physician providing gender affirming care to minors with a temporary carve out until March 31, 2024 for continuing care for minors who are already receiving treatment. So they've, they've got uh, a, a period in which they're supposed to wean the, the patient off the uh, cross-gender hormones or the puberty blockers. So uh, like forced detransitioning, basically. Uh, sounds like what's going on in Russia right now. We, we should mention that just uh, Shortly, a few days ago, uh, Vladimir Putin signed a new drastic anti-transgender law in Russia that has received front page coverage in the New York Times on the August 2nd issue, which bans gender affirming care for anybody, surgery, hormones, anything like that, and will cancel the marriages of transgender people, among other things. It will not allow new identifications or birth certificate changes or anything. I mean, Russia is, they want to sort of zero out transgender people. And there's a lot of talk that they're even going to close down the one transgender help organization in the country, which has already been designated a foreign agent. But anyway, getting back to Tennessee, which in some ways resembles Russia, I guess, the, uh, the federal district judge in that case, Eli Richardson, and maybe this is, uh, Eli Richardson issued a bad decision on, uh, on identification, but he issued a good decision on the ban on transgender care. He found that it violated the uh, due process rights of the transgender uh, youth, and it violated the equal protect- uh, rather the equal protection rights of the transgender youth and the due process rights of their parents, uh, finding a fundamental right, because in these cases, the parents wanted their children to get gender-affirming care. So this was you might say this was a stacked panel, this three-judge panel in the Sixth Circuit. Chief Circuit Judge uh, Jeffrey Sutton, who was appointed by George W. Bush, and who wrote the anti-same-sex marriage decision in the Obergefell case that got reversed by the Supreme Court. He's pretty consistently anti-LGBT. And the second judge on the uh, on the panel is Amol Thapar, who was appointed by President Trump and is known as very, very, very right-wing conservative. And 
that panel majority held that there is no fundamental right at stake in this case. They rejected the finding by Judge Richardson, a Trump appointee. They rejected his finding that the Supreme Court has recognized a fundamental right of parents to raise their children that would cover this case. Uh, he said, when we look at fundamental rights recognized by the Supreme Court involving parents, what we're talking about is education and we're talking about child custody issues. He said the Supreme Court has never recognized a fundamental right of parents to override the state's judgment about what medical care is available in the state. And he cited a case that was much cited in all the uh, controversy about mandatory vaccinations in, in connection with COVID, the Jacobson case from the Supreme Court from like 1917, in which the Supreme Court said that you don't have a fundamental right to refuse vaccination if the state says you have to have a vaccination because the state's trying to protect public health in an epidemic and they mandated vaccinations. And the case involved uh, parents who didn't want to submit their children to vaccination. But uh, the Supreme Court said you have to, that the state has an overriding interest in public health. So at any rate, they said it is clear that the Supreme Court now, when we look at the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision from, uh, from a year ago, they are very, have to take a very limited view on what constitutes unenumerated fundamental rights under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Basically, if a right wasn't well recognized in 1867 when the 14th Amendment was adopted, they don't recognize it. And gender affirming care, 1867, <laughs> there's no well-established right to, uh, to get access to gender affirming care. It didn't exist in 1867. And as to the equal protection arguments, they said, we don't see any equal protection issue here. For one thing, the court said, neither this circuit nor the Supreme Court has recognized gender identity discrimination as involving a suspect or quasi-suspect classification under equal protection. Therefore, there's no heightened scrutiny. Therefore, the question is rational basis of the state. The district court relied on the consensus of medical professional associations that this is appropriate care for a serious medical condition, gender dysphoria. But the court said, and uh, the, uh, the plaintiffs have to admit this in this case, there is controversy in the medical profession. Even though a majority of professional associations take this view, there are dissenters, there is debate, there are experts on both sides of the issue. Therefore, the state has a rational basis to do this. And it's inappropriate, they said, for a federal district judge on a motion for a preliminary injunction to decide this issue. And it's inappropriate for a federal district judge on a motion for a preliminary injunction to recognize a new fundamental right. Well, the interesting thing is that a lot of the other cases so far have treated this as fundamental right question on behalf of the parents in terms of their uh, right to have some say about the, uh, the medical care uh, of their children. But we in the LGBTQ movement have, have to be a little bit conflicted about this because then the parents are coming in, in other cases, and in some cases, uh, practitioners 
challenging the statutes banning conversion therapy, saying parents who want to provide conversion therapy for their children should be entitled to do so because they have a fundamental right. You know, we have this conflict going on as, as to is there a fundamental right and what is its scope and to what extent do the supervening policy decisions of the state take priority? And the uh, majority of the court in this case said, we, uh, we think that Judge Richardson paid too much deference to the views of the medical profession as opposed to the views of the legislature in this case. So they think there's a rational basis there. And in terms of the equal protection, they say there's no heightened scrutiny because uh, they do not see this as sex discrimination. Obviously, the Bostock case was tossed in there, and they said the Bostock case is only about employment discrimination under Title VII. It's not about equal protection. Now, we had a partial dissent here. Uh, the dissenting judge was originally appointed by Bill Clinton, and the nomination expired at the end of Clinton's term without Senate action, but there was a deal that was brokered early in the George W. Bush administration to, for Bush to renominate some of those people in exchange for the Judiciary Committee, which was controlled by the Democrats in the Senate, to uh, approve some of his early nominees. So a uh, judge here, uh, Helene White, uh, was initially appointed by Clinton, but then renominated by Bush, but she's really a Clinton appointee for purposes of deciding you know, the ideology of the president who initiated the appointment. She said, that under Sixth Circuit precedent, we recognize Title VII precedents as guiding us in interpreting the Equal Protection Clause. And therefore, she thinks Bostock should be referred to and that this should be a heightened scrutiny case. But she concurred in the opinion on another point. Judge Richardson had said they can't enforce this law against anyone. And the majority said, well, he doesn't. He's not in a position to do that because Sixth Circuit precedent says you should provide preliminary injunctive relief only as necessary uh, to protect the interest of the plaintiffs. And this isn't a class action. These are individual transgender people and their parents who filed this lawsuit. Maybe later in the litigation, it would have become a, it would become a class action, but that hadn't been certified yet. So the only plaintiffs here, the only people who are entitled to relief are the individual plaintiffs. And uh, Judge White agreed with that because that's Sixth Circuit precedent. She's bound by it. So uh, the preliminary injunction goes away. The gender-affirming care ban goes into effect in Tennessee, uh, retroactive to July 1st. But the case is still pending. This was just an action on a preliminary injunction. I think they are going to ask Judge Richardson to certify a class, and then they'll go on the merits. And uh, if uh, he concludes that his original analysis was correct, he'll go ahead with it. But of course, two to one majority of the Sixth Circuit, including the chief judge, has ruled against his analysis. So uh, I don't hold out much hope there. This may be the case that goes to the Supreme Court. Now, eventually, this issue will go to the Supreme Court just because there's so many cases around the country. And sooner or later, there was going to be a split of authority. Uh, we don't yet have a circuit court going the other way on this. So uh, we'll see what happens there. But uh, a setback and the first one on gender affirming care. But prior to this, we've had a virtually perfect record. So sorry to start us off with a uh, setback. A troubling setback, but unfortunately an expected one. Right. And I 
I put this as the lead story. We're shifting directions just a hair. Coming back to a discussion we started last month, we had some cases discussing the ministerial exception, but this particular edition of Law Notes, you're taking us to the Seventh Circuit for an update there. Yeah, this case involves a claim by Michelle Fitzgerald that her rights were violated under Title VII when her contract as a guidance counselor and co-director of the guidance department at Roncalli High School, a Catholic school run by the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, were violated when they didn't renew her contract because she had entered into a same-sex marriage. And by interesting coincidence, her co-director is also a lesbian who entered into a same-sex marriage and had her contract not renewed. I don't know if that one has resulted in a, a separate lawsuit, but they didn't combine it into one. So this just involves Michelle Fitzgerald. And she sued under Title VII. And uh, she said, I've been there for 14 years. I received positive performance reviews. And I'm a guidance counselor. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a, uh, I, I have nothing to do really with religion as such. The school said, oh, that's not true. You're on the administrative council. The administrative council makes policy decisions. And look at your self-evaluation. The annual evaluations, they asked faculty and staff to evaluate their performance. And she had written, and this was introduced in evidence, I consistently use spiritual life and resources in my counseling conversations, as well as sharing my own spiritual experiences I am faithful and have no problem sharing my beliefs and my love of God. All right. So she said, all right, she's part of the school's mission. This is a Catholic school. Our mission is to give students a Catholic education in a Catholic environment. And now she's gone and married a woman. And the church doesn't approve of this. And therefore, we shouldn't have to employ her anymore. Uh, and the uh, district court and now the Seventh Circuit affirming agrees that that's enough to bring her within the ministerial exception. And, and we should explain the ministerial exception is not written in Title VII itself. Uh, Title VII does have a religious institution exception that deals with the right of religious institutions to prefer members of their own religion as employees. They can give a preference without violating Title VII, which bans discrimination on the basis of religion. So Congress made a very careful and rather narrow carve out, which some judges have started to misinterpret by not giving a close enough reading. But the Supreme Court has uh, identified, has affirmed lower court decisions identifying a ministerial exception to the general rule that religious institutions are subject to Title VII with respect to every prohibited ground of discrimination except religion. They can discriminate in favor of people, hiring people and employing people of their same religion and of discharging people if they leave the religion or presumably if they create you know, some, uh, some terrible sin that gets them excommunicated. But uh, this ministerial exception, the court said, well, wouldn't it violate uh, the free freedom of practice, of religious practice, free exercise, if the government were inter interfering with the religious institution selection of the people 
who are going to be employed to advance their mission, their religious mission. And that's the ministerial exception. It was first recognized in a case about an elementary school teacher at a religious school affiliated with a church, uh, subsequently expanded a bit in decisions involving Catholic high schools. And the, uh, the Supreme Court in the most recent important case in this area, the uh, uh, Guadalupe case, said that the courts should give extreme deference to religious institutions in their decision about who is a ministerial employee. Now, there's another doctrine sort of hovering over all of this, which uh, does not play a central role in this case, but which has been evoked in other cases called the church autonomy doctrine. And uh, I don't think the Supreme Court has given it full-blown recognition yet, but it's achieved quite a bit of recognition in the lower course, courts. The idea that churches in general should be treated as autonomous and not subject to government regulation with respect to their personnel policies. And the uh, religious freedom organizations like ADF and Liberty Council and others of that ilk have been trying very hard to establish this as a overall complete shield of religious institutions from any obligation to comply with uh, Title VII or any other anti-discrimination law, so long as they cite a religious basis for their decision. But in this case, you know, we have a guidance counselor. And so the court affirms the lower court this one was unanimous. Uh, it was also uh, a totally Republican appointed panel. It was uh, a senior circuit judge appointed by Reagan and two Trump appointees. Uh, this is our legacy in the courts of appeals uh, because these people have lifetime appointments. They're gonna be around a while. Now, Americans United for Separation of Church and State represented the uh, plaintiff in this case, Michelle Fitzgerald, and they said that the case is ongoing which suggests to me that they're contemplating filing a cert petition. I doubt that they would ask for on-bank rehearing in the Seventh Circuit because the ideological balance in the Seventh Circuit right now is 10 to three. The, the circuit is dominated by Trump and George W. Bush appointees and uh, certain people dating back even further. So uh, that's where things stand on the ministerial exception in the latest Court of Appeals case. Interesting. For our final Law Notes deep dive, we're returning once again to sports. Last month, we spoke about collegiate-level athletes being harassed on the basis of their actual or perceived sexual orientation. This month, we're returning to bans on transgender women competing. What's happening in Arizona? Well, Arizona passed a law against transgender girls and women competing in women's sports and requiring that all athletic teams either be designated as male or female or mixed. Uh, there are some uh, sports where they're willing to allow men and women to compete together. But most sports, most uh, competitive sports are designated either for men or for women. And they said sports that are designated for women, only people identified as birth, at birth as women may compete. This has been challenged by two middle school students, transgender girls, who want to compete in girls' sports at uh, two different schools in Arizona. And so they filed a suit seeking declaratory relief 
they want they want a, a declaration from the court that enforcement of the law violates their rights to equal protection and also their rights under title nine the education amendments again under the americans with disabilities act claiming that gender dysphoria is a disability under the act and section 504 of the rehabilitation act which uh, prohibits discrimination based on disability by recipients of federal funding such as public schools <laughs> So they filed a motion for preliminary injunction together with their uh, complaint, which was filed in April. On July 20th, U.S. District Judge Jennifer G. Zips issued an order granting the motion for preliminary injunction. It's ambiguous about whether this is an order that the state not enforce the law at all while the case is pending or just that the state allowed these two transgender girls to compete. It was a, a multi-part order and... She did say in her order that the policy that had been adopted by the Arizona Interscholastic Association several years ago uh, would comply with the terms of her order. Now, the Arizona Interscholastic Association had adopted a case-by-case -case rule rather than a categorical rule. I mean, the, the statute that's being uh, attacked says categorically if you want to compete in women's sports, your birth certificate at the time you were born has to have recorded you as female. But the AIA said, uh, we understand that some transgender people who uh, transition prior to puberty use puberty blockers, you know, have low or no testosterone circulating in their system, et cetera and uh, have not gone through puberty, have not uh, developed the masculine body frame and musculature and everything. And, and uh, it may be fair for them to compete. So it should be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. And it seems both of these plaintiffs in this case would probably be able to compete as women or as girls in this case, the middle, middle school students. They would be allowed to compete under the AIA standards. So the judge says, the AIA standards are consistent with the declaratory judgment I'm giving here and the order that I'm giving here. So you might argue that this is really a statewide uh, ban on enforcement of the, uh, the ban on transgender girls uh, competing. Uh, the state immediately indicated that they are uh, filing an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Now, the Ninth Circuit is pretty good on transgender issues. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when this, when this case is, is argued there. Judge Zip relied on Ninth Circuit precedents to find that transgender discrimination against transgender people involves a sex-based classification, so heightened scrutiny. And the high scrutiny, she said, the purposes articulated by the state for passing this ban are not advanced by enforcing this ban. Uh, they claim that this was to promote equality and equity in athletic opportunities and to protect girls from physical injury in sports. I mean, the debate in the legislature was girls will be competing against boys. The girls are going to be injured because the boys are stronger, et cetera. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the know-nothing arguments that you get in state legislatures these days, at least from the Republicans who are proposing these bills, which are usually opposed by the Democrats. So uh, Judge Zip said the court finds that the defendants and the interveners, they allowed a group of state legislators to intervene to defend the law, 
failed to produce persuasive evidence at the preliminary injunction stage to show that the act is substantially related, related to the legitimate goal of ensuring equal opportunities for girls to play sports and to prevent safety risks. And one of their arguments is the transgender girls will replace cisgender girls. And the number of transgender girls who want to play sports is so small that this is an absurd argument. It's, it's not that uh, large numbers of cisgender girls are gonna be disappointed and not allowed to compete in sports because of all these transgender girls taking over and monopolizing. Doesn't happen. The numbers are small. In most states, you can count on, on, on one hand the number of cases. And uh, so uh, the court finds that this is, uh, this is sex discrimination. Uh, she also noted the Ninth Circuit had decided a case, which we, I, I believe, previously reported, reported on the Grabowski case. That was the uh, harassment case that you mentioned earlier, uh, applying the Bostock reasoning under Title VII to Title IX. So she's recognizing both an equal protection and a Title IX argument here. After this opinion, well, prior to this opinion being issued, actually, uh, the judge issued an order responding to an intervention motion by a group calling itself Arizona Women of Action, it consists of the mothers of, quote, biologically born girls who are opposed to letting transgender girls compete with their daughters. Uh, the court noted that there was quite a bit of overlap in the interests of this group and the interests of the state legislators who intervened to protect the statute. She said, I don't want duplicative arguments here. You know. Uh, one, one thing might be let them be an amicus, but don't make them an intervener because if they're an intervener, they have a right to argue. And so now it becomes more complicated because we've got the interveners arguing, we've got the state arguing, we've got the, uh, the plaintiffs arguing, and now we have two sets of interveners. She said, there should be some coordination. I'm gonna allow you to intervene, but I'm gonna say you must coordinate with the legislative group so I don't get duplicative briefing, duplicative motions, and all this kind of stuff. So they are going to be allowed to intervene, but the question of whether they have any standing is uh, an interesting question as well. Judge Zip was appointed by President Obama, and there is an appeal pending now in the Ninth Circuit. I think we're seeing so many cases across the movement that just really remind our first-year students how important standing is. And it's interesting to see that that piece of civil procedure that you might have thought was a bit of a sleeper in law school is coming back in so many different iterations here. So we've gotten through our three cases rather quickly today. Do you have anything of note? We certainly have time. Yes, uh, a bit of state law, which maybe doesn't have a lot of broad application, but it's, it's interesting nonetheless. It's a decision by the Michigan Supreme Court uh, from July 24th, extending the equitable parent doctrine to same-sex partners if the custody claimant proves they would have married before the birth of their child had the law allowed same-sex marriage. All right, so this is a case from Michigan. It involves two women, Carrie Pueblo and Rachel Haas. They were in a long-term committed relationship or domestic partnership from the early uh, years of this century until the early 2010s wrote Justice Megan Kavanaugh for the court. Legal marriage was not available to them in Michigan. They participated in a private civil commitment ceremony in June 2007 that was presided over by a priest 
and involved the exchange of rings and vows to take one another as life partners. Shortly afterward, they decided to have a child. Haas became pregnant through donor insemination, bore her child in November 2008. The women separated a few years later. Pueblo, who had been a de facto parent of their child, continued to have contact until Haas cut off her contact in 2017, resulting in a lawsuit. And when Pueblo sued, the trial court dismissed her case based on the argument that she was not legally related to the child and uh, thus had no standing to invoke the jurisdiction of the court to apply a best interest of the child standard in deciding whether she gets visitation rights or or joint custody or anything like that. And the case went up to the Michigan Supreme Court on the argument of extending the equitable parent doctrine to same-sex partners. The equitable parent doctrine in Michigan, as it pre-existed, mainly applied to step-parents and, you know, who were, in fact, married to uh, the birth parent of the child or the legal parent of the child or the adoptive parent of the child and had formed a relationship with the child, but they, they never adopted them. Uh, so they didn't have a legal relationship. So the court had recognized an equitable parent doctrine in such cases if there's then a breakup and then a dispute about visitation or something. Well, the court said, we are going to extend it to this kind of situation. However, to qualify for standing and invoke the jurisdiction of the court to make a best interest determination, the claimant will need to prove that they would have married had state law permitted them to do so at that time. Now, in this case, because they had a formal civil commit, uh, uh, civil union ceremony, they had a priest, they exchanged rings, they talked about life partners for life. I think it's a pretty strong argument there on remand to the lower court uh, that there's going to be standing here and that the, uh, the main issue will be best interest of the child. Is it the best interest of the child to continue to have a relationship with Rachel Haas, who was the co-parent? But this is a significant breakthrough. Uh, the court said, we, we realize that the number of cases that come within this fact constellation is likely to be rather small, but it's important to the parties. And we think the equitable parent doctrine should be extended this way. So it's nice to be able to present a win. And from the Michigan Supreme Court. Nice to present a win. And also, even if there's a small number of folks that are involved, given the time frame here, pre-marriage equality, it's, it's just lovely to see recognition of our families and protection of our families. So for our attorney, law student, judge, and legal professional listeners in the audience, we are still in bar membership renewal season. Visit www.lgbtbarny.org backslash membership hyphen plans to join or renew today. Law student membership is free and first year membership is discounted as low as $36 per year. Be a part of one of the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus bar associations in the country as we celebrate our 45th or Sapphire anniversary throughout 2023. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for renewing your membership. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.